Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asamma sambuddhasa Buddham dhammang sangham namasami traditional way of, of offering a, a Dhamma pointing, Desana, paying respect to the, the Buddha, the enlightened one. This establishes the precedent, the environment, the way that we're speaking, that I'm speaking, not from my own personal viewpoint, not from my own idea, but from that, the teaching, and from the view of the awakened. A view from the contemplative mind. We can say, Dhamma the way it is, And when we're looking from, with direct experience, rather than from ideas, suppositions, beliefs, viewpoints, when we're looking from the directly into the way things are, the way we feel things, where things are, who we are, what our life is about. This is called Dhamma, the way it is. Now, it's a kind of pretty vague idea, isn't it? It's an idea of the way it is. The way what is? The way it's what? What is it? What way? Because <laughs> the way it is, is something that we all have to experience moment by moment. No, you can't say the way it's red, or it's green, or it's black, or it's hot, or it's cold, or it's nice, or it's nasty. Because these are all changing. And sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. But the way that it is, is that it always changes. That's how it is. That's the way it is. So now you know the way it is. <laughs> and if you find something that isn't like that, then uh, you, may, you can start your own religion. <laughs> This is the this is the way that at least one experiences just looking say at today the way we've lived today there's a variety of things one could say about it but what we could say universally is that it changed I think we all realise that sometimes it didn't change quick enough or it changed didn't change the way we wanted it to but lo and behold it changed. No, this is the way it is. And also, we are contemplating, um, beginning to look at, at the realities that we uh, that get created 
the seemingly permanent positions uh, that we feel trapped by the way that it isn't or the way that it seems to be we seem to be stuck into these bodies stuck with memories, stuck with habits stuck with feelings uh, bound by a sensory predicament but sometimes pleasant sometimes unpleasant, sometimes neutral but we feel very much that we are with nowhere, and there's nowhere else except for that and as long as one feels there's nowhere else except for to be stuck within this then we must always quite naturally incline towards where, where's the possibility of, of the pleasant so that our lives will be always biased and striving uh, towards what can only be one third of the total of you towards that which is pleasant uh, because our, our nature is to incline towards what is pleasant and this is, is nothing one need to to uh, uh, feel ashamed of because the Buddha Dharma is based upon finding out inclining towards what is pleasant but what is totally uh, completely pleasant, the highest kind of pleasure Nibbana the highest kind of happiness and you won't find it through, through uh, rattling around inside the sensory predicament which can only give you a third at best it's not such a good place to find a total uh, utter peace of mind or contentment or happiness so the way that it is at least on the sensory level is that it's unsatisfactory that uh, the happiness that we derive just out of the on the on the apparent level of our lives is is not quite good enough and there are ple unpleasant things which are definitely not good enough and the neutral things are a bit of a drag and get unpleasant after a while because we get bored with them so it also seems to be uh, unsatisfactory and then there's this uh, peculiar when we ever we, we begin to try to, to find out what's this about, what are we doing, what should we do with our lives what should we get to uh, then we can come upon certain realizations one is that we, are, we, we seem to have been born we seem to have got these lumps of meat around us and that uh, it looks like we're going to die one day, maybe today maybe tomorrow but one day it's going to be today <laughs> there's that isn't there Ooh. so um, what, who is this? and what should I do with it? is there, some, you know, is there any point in my life if, if that's what it's about this is birth and death and meanwhile in the middle of it there's a kind of crossing the minefield of the sensory predicament with occasional arguments, rows, explosions, disappointments, heartbreaks, romances up in the air and down in the pits for 60, 70, 80 years until the chop Oi, sounds a bit of a raw deal how did I get here? did I deserve this? And then even more 
why is it, none of this really fits, does it? It's a strange feeling that one has been, when you look at it, you think, this is some kind of joke, isn't it? This is like being put on a, on a draft board or a checkers board, saying, you know, these are the games to play, but whatever game you play is checkmate. How did I, you know, what did I do to get here? When we just consider it very broadly. So that most of us probably think, well, okay, I don't know. No point in trying to figure out, just, you know, go along, try to do the moves that will make it life as convenient, as easy as possible. Get what you can out of it, don't think too much about it, and so forth. But that is a, that's rather a, as a position that we can't really rest content with for very long, can we? All of, none of you can, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You, you can't really believe in the, in the, the Ludo board of the conventional world. You don't want to be just going up, down, up snakes and down ladders, or is it the other way around? Otherwise I guess you wouldn't be here. So it's also, we, we feel rather, not unhappy, but not really convinced, not really satisfied with the conventional explanations that we are born here and that we belong to this and then we're born and we die. And that makes us perhaps begin to question and ask, who, who? Wait, who am I? And then as we look at that, we begin to see that what, who we are, of course, changes. In, in terms of, of how we measure ourselves. We could say I'm male or I'm female, preferably one or the other, or young or old, or, you know, I'm an Aries with cancer rising, or, you know, our astrological predicament, our temperament, whatever, our job, our role, our relationship, I'm a, you know, an only child, an orphan, a mother of six, or whatever. But these, we see, are all just definitions, aren't they? That actually these are just momentary perceptions that we can have. And uh, they're only relative. Being a mother of six is perhaps a, 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 a nagging perception. But there are, times, there are times when, even if you do have six children, and you are a, a, a female, and you're, you're the mother of them, that's not a constant notion, is it? The times when you're reading a book, or watching the TV, or walking through the park, when that, that idea fades away. You're suddenly just walking along, thinking, singing a song, or whatever. You're not really in that mould anymore. So all of our definitions, we begin to see, are just like suits of clothes that we wear. And these more or less get put on us and taken off us by circumstance. Uh, somebody says, now, you know, your little entwistle comes up to you and says, mummy, mummy, and there you are, you're being mother of six again. But when he's gone away, you know, you can, you can forget about that role, you could be somebody else. Being an Aries with cancer rising is probably a, only a perception that lasts in the mind at certain particular moments. Being a size 9 shoe is probably a fairly rare perception that has certainly got a, a dramatic reality when you go to a shoe store, but at other times not important. You don't say to the customers, 
officer, you know, he said, who are you? I'm a size nine. <laughs> you know, or you get announced that when you go to a party. Hey, this is size nine coming in. But at certain times, this is, of course, a very important definition of what one is. You go to the shoe store, you don't bother to tell him of your Aries with cancer rising. Or So who, we, we can actually look at all of these definitions of the most absurd and conventional down to some of the most intimate. You know, I'm a paranoid. You know, I've really got a lot of this and I've got a lot of that. And I, you know, I'm restless and a bit frantic, but a good guy, really. Another suit, isn't it? Another suit of clothes, perhaps a little more intimate. It's like your underwear. <laughs> and yet that's only a, a, a something you perceive at certain times you know when you're just being with yourself and you're thinking about yourself okay what am I let's get down to it let's be honest really be honest with myself listen you've got a lot of problems you're paranoid but you're a good guy thanks <laughs> <laughs> I talk straight to myself and, and we can take these very seriously too but these are you know you can recognize that actually if we look at these directly these are just momentary perceptions that arise dependent upon circumstances and what I one term I'm using with this is, is reflecting on the world and the self <coughs> that our self-definition depends very much upon the milieu in which we find ourselves. Like, uh, where, say, um, you know, sexual identity becomes important in certain worlds, doesn't it? In certain little realms of our existence. Our family relationship, our astrological predicament, our psychic predicament, our skills in meditation are all relevant in our own little worlds. The world and the self the self-image and the worldview are closely interrelated, the two depend upon each other. So when we are, we can, if we look internally, this kind of projection of the feelings, the emotions, the ideas, the notions, internally we create self somebody here, who is this? If we project it externally, the kind of fears, worries, anxieties, joys, etc., the feelings and emotions and perceptions, we create the world. We create the world of enemies and friends and neighbours and people we're a bit anxious about, people we care for, people we feel worried about. And we can, we can buzz around inside that little world so that our whole day is spent thinking about oh, so-and-so and this and that and what they're doing. It's people, isn't it? It's an environment within which we live. And the two tend to define each other. Now, when you go to a totally different situation, like you come here, then perhaps for a little while that the, there's this strange um, unhinged feeling because suddenly you, know, you can't quite project immediately onto the outside. Who's this? Who's that? We haven't quite established it. After a while we may establish something. So a lot of this starts to come inwards, doesn't it? 
not of the the uh, the uh, the inner world becomes very dramatic because we we are removed from a situation in which the outer world will really support that. The outer world here is structured. It's just this way. It's fairly simple. It's structured as a day is this way, and uh, you can't really engage a lot with it. If you like it, it's this way. If you don't like it, it's this way. If you're happy, it's this way. If you're excited, it's, 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 it's the same way. It's a conventional form. And the use of a conventional form in a retreat situation is so that you can, you can actually contemplate all of these uh, projecting qualities as they are, rather than thinking that actually it's the external world that's creating them. But it's important also to, to look, to, to understand that it's not an internal thing. Sometimes in these situations you think you're going, uh, you're getting unhinged, because the, the internal world gets so, so uh, productive. The crises, the, the anxieties, the longing, the hankering, the, the uncertainties. Yeah. Now, in, so we need to establish a, uh, a foundation as the external structure, which is as it is and is not changing and wavering according to our feelings, and then the internal structure. So we're establishing these foundations of mindfulness, the first one being the body, physical form, body consciousness, the feeling the body in the body. This is a very good uh, structure, you can't always take this place with you when you go, but you can take this physical form with you as your foundation, as your home base. And then you can, you can contemplate the kind of ideas and notions and uh, anxieties one can have about the body, what it's like, what it will become, what other people think of it, and so forth. The kind of projections that we can, we can put onto it, and then you can contemplate it as it actually is. The body as we feel it is neither, is not uh, pleasant nor unpleasant, nor male nor female. As we feel it, it's just the body. Just a mass of, of energy, of movement, of elemental uh, experience. There's a feeling of of weightiness, of warmth, of pressure, of movement, of space. Simple elemental qualities. There's pleasure and pain in different qualities. This is what we, we experience when we experience the body in the body. We don't experience it as young or old. Or any of these other external notions. So directly we experience it as changing and also as unowned, as ownerless. There's nobody, there's nobody in there, is there? How can you contemplate the feeling of the body, the body as it is? You don't find, you know, look underneath a kneecap and there's somebody there. You know, you go in, into a, a, a pleasant feeling and there's a little person in there. Hi, I'm the owner. It's me. There's nobody there. It's just feelings. 
And there's this, certainly there's a, there's a kind of moving around of an instinct to own, to possess, to control, but it's always frustrated. So the, the owner is actually trying to claim ownership of something that he can't own. There is a self-instinct, an owning instinct, a possessiveness. But when we directly experience, say, our bodies, we, we begin to realise this body is not me, is not mine. Yes. And that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. We begin to consider, well, you know, it dies, doesn't it? I don't want it to die, but it does. It, it grows this way. It's not growing in accordance with the way I'd like it to. It's, it doesn't obey me. It gets sick. You know, it needs food. It does inconvenient things at inconvenient times. It embarrasses me sometimes. It, it spoils my sense of dignity sometimes. You know, it's kind of like having a carrying a, a, somebody around with you who's always making the wrong jokes at the wrong time. <laughs> so you, you wish it wasn't there. It kind of clods over things and, and clumps around, or causes you pain and problems. So there's this, this uh, contemplating the body in the body. This is why it's like this, because actually it's not, it's not self. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to anybody, there isn't anybody in it. Now this is uh, anatta, when we, we begin to, uh, non-teaching of non-self, we apply it to, to the physical formation. Now this has to be understood because um, people can assume that, that non-self or anatta implies a kind of annihilation, a, a sense of lack of care or dismissal of it, not mine, no, not interested in it anymore. But let's consider that this is actually um, an instruction, it's a question, is this yours? Well, who does it belong to? And uh, to, to experience anatta you have to commit yourself totally to be with, cooperate with, attend to completely uh, the physical form. It's not, you don't realize uh, selflessness through dismissal or through lack of care. You realize it through a complete uh, loving, caring, cooperative, attentive quality. Attention to the physical form. And it's this that begins to give us a sense of, of, of space, of release, as a kind of wonder. Who am I? We don't know anymore, but we begin to experience a kind of lightness or brightness about our, about our predicament that causes us to investigate. And we, we can bring this teaching, this question into, our, into the mind, into consciousness, into all of the things that we assume ourselves to be or to belong to and ask ourselves the same question. If you can watch it and observe it, is it you? Because if it is, who's watching it? Simple kind of question, isn't it? But the body is perhaps the most um, helpful at first because the contemplation of that has two, facet has two faculties. It is immediately tranquilizing it's grounding, it's earthing, 
and as well as giving you, granting you insight. So it's a good place to go to. Um, it's a place where the world can become the earth. Now when we are, have self-consciousness, rather than just body consciousness, we are constantly finding ourselves in the world. The body in the world is what? When we're self-conscious about the body, the body is, say, it's beautiful or it's ugly or it's, you know, it's always um, something we define comparatively, isn't it? Something we feel perhaps nervous about or we wish it was one way or we wish it was another way. We compare it with other people's bodies. Is it stronger, fitter? I wish I could be more like this man or this woman. <coughs> we can feel attracted and repelled. But all of these um, are changing experiences and notions. And whenever one holds onto them, uh, then we get whirled around. That's why it's called the world, because you get whirled in it. As you, you find yourself thinking, I want to be, you know, like if you if you like to be, say, just beautiful, then what what is beautiful? There's an ideal, isn't it, that that we can never actually realise the beautiful, the perfect, as an idea in the world, because as soon as we start to compare, we say, how beautiful am I? Now, if you think you're beautiful, or you'd like to be beautiful, then you can always find something that's not ideal. Because the, the consciousness that looks at that is, is the self-consciousness. And self-consciousness is, is this notion, has this idea <coughs> in it, idea of perfection. It's a comparing, judging thing, and you can always find that the world of nature never matches up to the immaculate uh, conception of the abstracts that our self-consciousness creates. I felt like uh, we can spend a lot of time trying to make ourselves look good, and we never look right. And this uh, girlfriend I had was a few years ago. <laughs> Quite a few years ago. <laughs> She's still there somewhere. Always looked really good to me from where I was at. She, really, she spent hours kind of doing her hair up. You know, hair sticking you know, it's great. It's hanging on your head. You know. <laughs> Where it should be. Very nice. Oh my end split ends, you know, kind of little hairs of split at the end. You know. To me it wasn't you know, so what? But because the self consciousness is very obsessive, isn't it? You know, why why whenever whenever we say we feel self conscious, it's a totally obsessed viewpoint, isn't it? Where one feels paranoid, hypercritical, hyper judgmental. Like one of the most, I think one of the most frightening experiences of most people is to, is to get up in public and make a speech. Everybody is looking at, at me. This heightened sense of, of, of self is a, is a fear thing. Because when we heighten that sense of self, we heighten the judgments and the, 
and the expectations we make out of it. We magnify the expectations by the number of people that are witnessing it. Yeah. It's bad enough being self-conscious on your own. Being self-conscious in a crowd is, uh, is torment, isn't it? Because we, we imagine that everybody else is making the same kind of judgments that we're making about ourselves. And I found this very difficult. Because um, like giving Dhamma talks is, is, a st- is a... You know, if you feel you're giving them, and this is you speaking, and that you know, your life depends upon it, your image of what you are depends upon what people think of this, then this is a very anxious experience. The first time I had to give a Dhamma talk, it had only been ordained about six weeks. And he said, oh, go and give a talk. Oh. Right. <laughs> so I went up there and I said, you know, <laughs> so I, and I well, uh, sit there and uh, watch your breath and, you know, basic stuff. And, <laughs> and it worked all right. Uh, got away with it. Nobody noticed, you know. I was trembling with fear. But then I had to go and do it again. And the next time I, I thought, you know, well, I'm really going to do a good job this time. I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to be out there. I'm really going to research this, give them the ultimate. That, so I got, I, got a, I got a kind of amalgam of Mahasi Sador, Krishnamurti, Chogyam Trumpa, Alan Watts, threw in a sprinkling of, of, of rum dust, this, that and the other, kind of delivered this potpourri, totally incomprehensible. <laughs> garble. People looked at me totally mystified. And then somebody wrote me a letter after saying, well, I found out about Buddhist meditation, maybe you'd be interested. <laughs> you know, this is what I was supposed to be teaching. But why, why is it like, whenever you, you, whenever you do something from a self-conscious viewpoint, why do you always get into these ludicrous predicaments of nervousness, of, of anxiety, of, of trying too hard, of and all these kind of, why can't you just let things be the way they are and just say what you, what you know and be what you are and look like you look like. You know, if you're ugly, be ugly, but be happy with it. Or <laughs> why, do you always ha- why does one always have to be old trying to be young, ugly trying to be beautiful, you know, stupid trying to be clever? And then maybe if there wasn't this trying to be, maybe we'd find that our, our ugliness wasn't so ugly after all. It was really quite nice. And our stupidity wasn't as stupid after all, it was quite interesting. If we didn't constantly make comparisons, then perhaps we'd actually appreciate the way we are, not in terms of some comparative self-view of what the world sees me as, but just, this is the way it is. You know? And we could learn perhaps to, to give our lives freely, generously, lovingly, benevolently, shamelessly, as they are. This is, this is what I know, this is the way I am. It's, you know, I'm not saying it's the best or the only, or, you know, or any kind of comparative statement apart from this is the way it is. 
So the, this statement, this is the way it is, becomes a, a refuge, a dhamma. We say this is dhamma, it's not self anymore. It's not held at, uh, to as it some kind of quality that has to be measured in terms of abstract perfection. It's not something that one is holding up as saying, you know, this is something that I want praise for, don't give me any blame. I, don't want, I want happiness, don't give me un any unhappiness. I just want fame, I don't want ignominy, I want respect. None of that kind of blame or accusations. We're not making our lives like that into around these worldly dhammas. And then there is a possibility for escape from the world or liberation from the world. Or more properly, the world need not arise in our lives. The frightening otherness of what they might think and what I should be and the way things ought to be so that I can fit in with what they think I ought to be. This kind of world need not arise for us. And then we, we have ended suffering. The Buddha said that you, you don't get to the end of suffering until you reach the end of the world. But you'll never reach the end of the world by travelling. You, you, but you will reach the end of the world within this very body with its perceptions and feelings and notions. You'll see the world's arising, its duration and its cessation here, in this place. Now, this practice of seeing where the world ends, we can, we can bring it to bear in our bodies because, we, as I'm saying, the world is composed out of these worldly dhammas, out of these worldly views out of this self-consciousness that's constantly creating an, an otherness that measures and judges us, this tyrant on our backs. You know, one, the means of, of tranquility and insight, looking into the body. the way it is. And when we say the way it is, we, we, the, the body becomes a Dhamma rather than a world or a self. It's not something we have to hold anymore. In our practice we're actually recognizing where we hold, first of all, what we'd like, what we don't like, just in terms of physical, we don't like pain. We like, we like pleasure. We don't like discomfort. We like comfort. Now, um, cooperating with this, contemplating this, this, this predicament, can it be any other way? I mean, I suppose if you extremely perverse, you could make it so that you could like pain and dislike pleasure or feel ashamed of pleasure and somehow revel in pain as a kind of thing that was doing you good. But this is really just very much the same kind of predicament as, as any other position. So in meditation what you're doing is actually realizing or, or contemplating where there's the holding, the inclinations, the, the fondness for this and the aversion to that. And rather than trying to, to stop that pattern, 
we are no longer engaging with that, we let that be as it is. We realise there's things we like, things we don't like. We don't have to continually add or try to annihilate. There is that in us which when we, when we, come to, when we fully are conscious of, of our inclinations, of the physical form and its drives and inclinations, then we, we, we can recognise that, we can respect it and honour it and learn to live with it without aversion or, or idealism of some kind or another. But in order to, to um, get beyond the world, you have to first of all know the world, touch the world, open to the world the way it is. When we touch the world, we, it becomes the earth, our, our home. One of these, this Buddha image here is touching the earth. This is what this gesture of the hand down pointing is. This, this is the very symbol of the Buddha's enlightenment, the earth touching mudra. So it's important to consider the, the, the significance of that particularly in our practice now. Because one would assume, perhaps, that, that enlightenment means, means getting away from the earth. If we're going to leave the world, let's get rid of the earth, let's get rid of desire, let's get rid of all those grubby things that deal with planetary existence. You know, let's get rid of the, the craving, the lust, the hunger, the wanting food, the wanting to sleep, looking for sex or fun or amusement. or you know, Let's get out of all that get to some kind of ethereal other place where the Buddhas point up into the sky and say, yay, it's up here. But they don't. They point down there, down to the earth. And what is life on the earth about, isn't it? Now, Buddhas are enlightened on the earth by recognising the earth, recognising the instinctive level, recognising the, the sensory predicament for what it is. This body is a sense body, it's a, it's a sense organ. If you like, it has um, five external senses. The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the sense of touch. And the only way that sense organs operate is they, they, like, they hold. They are designed to grasp. And when something strikes the sense organ, it, it says, what's that? Holds that. Even for a moment, it has to hold it, and then it picks up the phone, gets onto the brain, and says, "Hey, brain, this is pleasant." Brain says, "Oh yeah, well, give me more." And so that's the way it works, isn't it? Brain says, "More pleasure." Yeah, brain's in there. Mind consciousness is just it deal, mind consciousness deals more on this kind of uh, byproduct of impingement, saying, "Doesn't matter whether it's." Uh, or it's black or green or red. Tell me whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's all I want to know. And if it's pleasant, the message is more. <laughs> That's what the, the, the brain consciousness does, doesn't it? But the senses themselves don't, the external senses don't really do that. They're, they're inclined to, to grasp, but their nature is just to hold, to retain, to get an impression. So we can, if we're just attuned to sensory existence, touching the earth, without making anything of it, we can recognise, say, feeling, and then 
you know, maybe that's a pleasant feeling, but it doesn't have to go, we don't have to take it any further than that. It's not a denial of feeling, but that we no longer have to pick up the phone, relay the message, and get the command. We can say, it's this way. This is pleasant. And what does pleasant mean? Pleasant means there's that kind of movement towards, and there's a looking for, and then that movement ceases. If you wait with it, if you don't start either repressing or or following, you just wait with that feeling, it comes and it goes. It passes away, it's impermanent. Notice that, with, say, with, with any kind of pleasant feeling, that in order to sustain that, you have to keep remembering it. Mm-hmm. Like why we, where one fantasizes in meditation. Our brain gets on the phone, it's dialing numbers down to the, hey, give me food, food, food. has to keep bringing it up, doesn't it, in order to recreate pleasant feeling. Like, because say when you, you sit down at your, your, your meal and you eat the food, it's come and gone. The, the, but the memory of it, the constant, is where the desire is. No. That's where, what the, bra- the brain is doing and the mind consciousness. Keeps recreating, keeps saying, well, that's really great, let's have some more. And then you, then you oh, shut up, stop it, stop it, stop it. Yeah. Must get back to my meditation practice. Back to that, yeah. Message comes down, hey, ding, 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 food, great, give me more. (laughs) Constantly being like in a telephone booth, all these messages coming through. Oh, that's some music, rock and roll, it's good for you. Oh, no, I want to hear that one. Phone rings again. (laughs) And so forth. But it's actually, it's recreated, it's not permanent. It may seem seem like it because it's, it's maybe continuous, but it's a, it's a continual repetition of imagery, of perceptions, of notions. There's nothing real to it. It's all, it's all fantasy. We can recognize it as fantasy. And the, what our possibility is immediately is to know it's that much and to, to realize we don't need to take it any further. We don't need to, say, pick up aversion, believe in it, repress it. We can know it's, it's this much. That's quite... That is possible to know the wanderings of the mind are this much, and they they do not apply to reality. Desire, for example, when you you see it, only works as long as you haven't got it. It's impossible to desire what you've got. You can't like you can't desire being here. So after a while, you desire to get away. When you're away, you can desire to be here. But right now, you can't possibly desire to be here. You may like it or dislike it, but you can't crave it, can you? Oh, great, I must get here. Because you're here. Now, so the movement of desire is always this setting up the possibility of something that might be that isn't right now. But when you got it, you would feel great. And the constant... Uh, mirage of that is as soon as you get that then it's no longer great because you can't create the kind of fantasy 
You can't compare it. You can't. It's just as it is. When things are as they are, you can't. You can't compare them. You can't uh, uh, create all kinds of adjectives and descriptions around it. Like if you are away from here, you can think, "Oh, I am as Barry, the wonderful wood panelling." Oh, inspiring Dhamma talks. Oh, the wonderful food. Oh, the blissful company. The peace, the compassion, the tranquility. Oh, how lovely. Compared, we say, with being in, in uh, Philadelphia in a traffic jam, hungry, or with a, a cold liverwurst sandwich in your pocket. <laughs> I wish I was in Barry where they had lovely organic bean sprouts and <laughs> cooked with loving kindness and people were quiet and beautiful but when you're here you think hey, it'd be really fun to be in Philly tonight you know because <laughs> that's but whatever we're, wherever we're at it's the way it is so it can't, the way it is, is not desirable. You can't create anything around the way it is. It's just the way it is. This moment is the way it is. In a few moments' time, we can remember it and think, oh, that was good, or, oh, that was bad. But right now, it's just this, isn't it? <coughs> so the, the ending of desire is not something you have to desire. You can't say, oh, I'm going to get rid of desire. How do I do that? struggle with it, fight with it, you know, desire something else, desire to get rid of desire, perhaps I'm desiring too much, and you start to go slightly uh, convoluted. The desire is always seen through in the present moment, so even when we say we're at this moment, say fantasizing, wanting something, longing for something, we recognize it's this way. They have to be very honest and, and tolerant and contemplate, you know, the sense organs and the brain work this way. It's not something one intends or sets up or, or chooses. Most of us find it extremely aggravating when you, when you can't follow it. We feel perplexed by it, ashamed of it, distressed by it annoyed with it. And that's part of the problem. Because that very irritation prevents us from really being with the way it is. We're always thinking, I shouldn't be this way, I should be that way. My mind should be this way and it shouldn't be that way. But how, that is another desire, isn't it? The way it is. Sense consciousness, pleasure, pain, movement towards pleasure, movement away from pain. Brain associates, remembers, adds dimensions to, paints colours all over that basic information. This is the way it is. There's nothing personal, idiosyncratic, diseased or impure about that. The, what can be avoided, what is the, the addition that is unnecessary and is stressful, is this strange phantom who owns the thing, the ghost in the machine, the strange illusory self drifting around, desperately either claiming ownership or trying to claim ownership 
of the way it is or trying to make it into something else. And we see that actually when you, the one thing that you cannot perceive is that. Now, this seeing things this way, we, we have to accept the responsibility in our lives to recognize the senses operate this way. Therefore, if you want to avoid yourself a lot of unnecessary stress, pain and struggle, then you don't, you don't put this sensory uh, consciousness into situations where it's always going to be whipped up into, into craving and aversion. You try to restrain or contain, limit, not out of uh, repression, but just out of well-being. You don't put a baby in a bonfire. You know, is this denying a baby's freedom to not put it in a bonfire? So the, the sense consciousness has to be understood and, and cared for with compassion. Not because we really feel that we're denying ourselves anything by denying ourselves the consuming of anxiety and craving and, and aversion. Apart from perhaps denying ourselves suffering. Though we begin to take responsibility for this body and this, this sense consciousness, knowing the way it is, the way it has to be. And there's a possibility of, of living and conducting oneself in this way, which is not um, repressive or, 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 or paranoid, but actually a mode of being that is extremely loving, fulfilling, gracious. And beautiful, where we can find a, a, a fulfilment within this body and this, this sense predicament that we can't find by just letting it range and continually create ideas and notions that are never fulfilling, can never be fulfilled. And this is the, the path of, uh, of um, the middle way, path of Dhamma. A total responsibility, because we understand the way it is on the earth level, on the planetary level. Now, Buddhas understand the way it is. They understand that the various images and perceptions and notions and desires and hankerings and impulses and instincts that, right, that run through the body are the way they are. They belong to the earth. But they're no longer creating a world out of it, or a self out of it. You see, this is a place for practice of Dhamma. And when we practice Dhamma, this is not just righteous, but that which leads us towards uh, true peace, truth, understanding, a sense of self-respect, personal fulfilment. Now, consider just uh, the the what our what we essentially look for behind all of our our lookings for our coming here our seeking a place a responsibility a job or whatever we're looking for some kind of of happiness some place where we we feel at peace at one with things
and the very um, if one doesn't understand clearly if we treat ourselves or other people or our planet as as objects from the self viewpoint that is something that I'm going to have get or get away from for me <coughs> this never fulfills us the idea of happiness being something that I can have just perhaps a verbal expression but this kind of notion never really achieves it we tend to like if we if we impose that upon another person say you have to make me happy that's a that's a real uh, imposition isn't it if we ask that from anybody saying make me happy you have to constantly please me is the one way to make sure that that they hate you (laughs) that you feel frustrated by them because if you're asking that from anybody or from the your job or from the world around you or from your city saying please gratify me make me happy then this self-consciousness means that one starts to compare and think well you didn't do this I don't like that you could comb your hair that way why do you come in late why is the city dirty why is the government corrupt or weird why is the planet messed up why don't you please me me what then you know the the whole idea that there's some this notional self which we can't even find anyway should have the entire universe rotating around it constantly it's beck and call popping up every now and then saying we love you we love you we want to please you make you happy this is a caricature but there are those times when one one feels that the self-pity or the complaining or the anxiety comes up and we start to impose it upon upon we start to feel complaining and and grasping seeking happiness in that way is is a critical complaining position isn't it nothing has ever done that for me and since I was a little boy I thought the, I thought I, was, I went to, I, I saved up my pocket money to get a water pistol my parents didn't, didn't want me to buy it because it cost two and sixpence which in those days was a lot of money but I did it anyway I saved up my, my pocket money and then I I snuck off and I went to the store and I bought this water pistol this is it and then by the time I got home I was bored with it it was my first Dharma experience (laughs) (laughs) and they've all been like that water pistols, toy cars uh, examination results, degrees girlfriends, jobs they've all done that to me every single one of them let me down (laughs) (laughs) the weather monks, Buddhism, meditation all a 
rotten deal, if you ask me. Not one of us made me happy. <laughs> and they're still not doing it. That's the way it is. So when one begins to see that that's the way, then we, there's a possibility we can actually just stop asking that. There's this kind of, like, as we begin to, to, to approach our lives more, more responsibly, there has to be this total, this realisation that this is, you know, if you want truth, then you've got to open to the way it is and realise this is not a place where you're going to get what you want. It's not possible because it's like trying to drink a mirage. You, as soon as you get there, it disappears and goes somewhere else. Now, when we, we realise the, the pain of that and the distress of that, there comes a kind of a giving up, a surrender, a saying, well, with a whatever it is, I'll take it as it is. However it is, I'll just accept the way it is. You know? And so on a retreat, we say, the possibilities of going completely crazy after three days, having a, a union with God on the night of the fourth, visionary experience, or pain in the knee, whatever, we'll take it as it is. When it comes, we'll, we'll just be with it. And we make that kind of realisation, we feel totally, that makes us feel a lot better actually. We think, phew, I don't have to be happy, enlightened, positive, cheerful, integrated, you know, I don't have to get anything out of this at all. Oh, thank goodness, I can be miserable. <laughs> there's this kind of relief. And with that, we begin to see that there's a kind of freedom and the possibility of it. Well, here I am, there's nothing to do, particularly. You know, I haven't got anything to get out of this. Well, there's this, you know, there's these forms, this body, mind, and so forth, consciousness. And then we begin to see the possibility of actually using this, rather than trying to hold something with this hand, like a fist, and gimme, 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 we can actually give with it. We can actually offer with that. And we find in this, uh, uh, it's quite possible to live in a social world with people, beings, with oneself, the physical forms, uh, but in a state of totally giving. We can learn to love without, any, without asking for anything. It doesn't become important whether, whether people make us happy or the world is perfect. It's no longer necessary for it to be that way. Because perfect or imperfect, we can still give to it. We can still offer something to it. We can still bring forth some quality that, that's beautiful, that makes us feel somehow a quality of aliveness, of vitality, of being around, of actually alive. We count, we matter in some way. Not just as persons, as, as, as kind of alienated egos drifting around on the crust of the planet looking for some sense of self-importance, but as actually living beings who are not concerned with their self-identity or image, but whose life is, is that of, of giving. Giving to this, this world as it is. And if it's painful, 
then we can offer up our patience or our tolerance or our humour or our forgiveness. If it's pleasant, we can offer up our uh, gladness, our enjoyment. If it's indifferent, then we can be calm and equanimous. The world, in fact, is a perfect place for offering. It's a lousy place for gaining anything. <laughs> Absolutely miserable. But as a, as a situation for offering, it presents boundless opportunities. So this is a, a possibility. And we can say, just to try this out, now when I say the world, I'm, I again reflect on what I mean. Touching the earth, coming to terms with the way things are, is actually just a position, isn't it, from uh, a place or a way in which we, we manifest either grasping or loving, either holding on or giving. So this, this world we can make, we can start with our, very intimately with our own bodies. Very directly, something you, you, you can be with constantly. Or you can, you can at least keep inclining your mind towards it in a very direct way, more directly than you can to, to somebody else. You know, the chances of actually really meeting with somebody is, even when we're good friends, is not that often really, you know, to really meet together. It, it, because there's this separation. It's, um, you know, the way it is on the sensory level. That we can't expect kind of total communion and harmony and integration with everybody else all the time. I don't think our nerve endings would stand it anyway. We can, we can come across and we can trust. And we can make ourselves available for those moments when we do manage to reach each other, when we manage to express and communicate. But with this body, we can, we can practice. Even this body is sometimes it's a little bit difficult to get in touch with, isn't it? But with meditation you can, and concentration, you can sustain an attention towards it, to, to actually be with the feelings <coughs> the, of the body. And there's a kind of, as a tranquility because the body is a calming and a, a steady energy to it, a steady rhythm to it, and there is a sense of offering. As we 
uh, you know, just come to terms with the, the act of sitting, for example. Uh, to, to change the attitude so one is no longer sitting in order to, to get something in the mind, whatever that, wherever that is, whatever that's about, or expecting the body to be one way or another, but you're just using the body as, as a, a working place for harmony, for cooperation, for peaceful coexistence, to, to bring a kind of uh, an energy and an attention to the body that is caring and respectful, to, to rest the body when it needs rest, and to, to look at the requisites that are offered the food and the shelter and so forth, clothes that one has, in this way, or these are for the welfare of the body. So we're not expecting anything out of them or using them as fantasy objects anymore, but as that which we, we appreciate for, what, for the service that they can, they can give to this physical form. And this planet is a very good place for a, a human body. On the, on the earth level, we are extremely well endowed with everything that this body needs. And then the, the, the sickness of it is something we can be patient and compassionate with. The youthfulness and the, and the vigor and the, and the uh, impulsiveness of it is something we can be tolerant and humorous about the aging and the death of it is something where we experience a kind of a peacefulness and a letting go and a relinquishment of this body when we no longer we no longer need to be operating with it anymore so the whole rhythms of the body whether it's vigor its sickness its decline is something that we can relate to and just uh, doing this means that you you save yourself a lot of the unnecessary uh, problems and accumulations that, that occur when one's not aware of the simple realities of one's life. When we take for granted the physical existence. In, uh, certainly in, 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 uh, for most of us in Western countries, physical uh, life is not, a, is not threatened, is it? I mean, you know, maybe the occasional uh, mugger or, or maniac on the road or whatever, but we don't have to worry about animals knocking us off like, like the birds do. We don't have to wonder if we're going to get through the winter. There's not going to be enough berries or nuts to eat. We feel fairly secure. But that security makes us dull and we become psychologically totally insecure. I mean, that the not knowing the, the 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 lack of direct experience with our lives means that our consciousness is drifting around looking for places to to get to rest into to become to occupy itself with rather than dealing with the the realities of our life because we've taken physical existence very much for granted but yet all of us, our, we need to eat every day. That food has to be produced by the planet, cooked, prepared. 
So that every day that that, that happens is a miracle. It's an act, uh, it's something one should appreciate, feel grateful for, as it is. Rather than, you know, take as one's right, as a kind of privilege because one is a human being. It's just this reflecting onto the way things are that brings us to our senses. And then the, the physical insecurity of our life, which, which it actually is, because even though maybe one can get food out of the freezer and uh, always get a bed for the night, you can never tell when there's going to be some pain or twinge in the body. Yeah. Something's going to knock you down, some organ's going to, going to mutiny on you. Pancreas is going to go on strike, or your lungs are going to give up headaches, etc. It still is actually a physically insecure position to be in. And rather than feel aggrieved or complain about that, or think this shouldn't happen to me, that's a teaching for us. So that we remain aware every moment of the way things are, and we're no longer expecting. So that with that defenselessness, with that non-holding, with that non-expecting of our, of our attitudes towards our bodies, our lives on this planet, we begin to experience a, a sense of joy, gratitude and wonder at being alive, this physical existence. Now I found my, myself just things like walking up and down, which I find quite a pleasant thing to do actually because I'm, being with the body, the body quite likes doing that ambling up, ambling down particularly the sunshine very nice way to spend a day, I could do that all day actually but when you're up in your mind it's crazy isn't it flowers, the trees, birds, go for a walk somewhere think about something, remember something <laughs> All over, the all over the place, isn't it? You want to meditate more, concentrate, not get enough concentration here, not you know, get enough sati, not enough wisdom. Maybe I should try anything. All head stuff, isn't it? Because we're actually not doing the first elemental thing of, you know, get into to this thing as it is. We can create ideologies about meditation and concentration as some kind of mind stuff, as if the mind is somehow totally separated from the body. When we apply ourselves to the body, that this is where our mind is, and we experience a joyous and an easeful, peaceful mind when we attune it to that which is peaceful. Not mind-created notions of, of enlightenment or meditation or whatever, but actual concrete realities of the way things are. It's, it's very simple, isn't it? Pity we're complicated, <laughs> but that's the way that is. So, <laughs> you know, one has to recognize that this path is going to take quite a bit of patience and, and uh, learning, surrender, humility, and uh, good-heartedness to sustain, but it, it's well worth it, well worth the trip.
And while you're here for this time, then I encourage and support everyone's intentions to 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 do that, to to bring into to their lives the teaching of the Buddha, the Dhamma, so they may experience what the Buddha was talking about when he said Nibbana, which is realizable here and now in this life. So I offer this for your reflection tonight. If you'd like to take a, a, a short break, a few minutes, then uh, um, come back and we'll, we'll uh, have another sitting. <coughs>